James chapter 1 is our text. If you'd like to open your Bible there or navigate on your device, James chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 19 through 27. James 1, 19 through 27 is our text. The topic, James invites us to look into the mirror. And the title of our message, Mirror, Mirror of the Lord, He's the Fairest of Them All. Amen. Amen. Let's let's just give a big amen. How's that? Amen. All right, super Pentecostal crowd this morning. Ushers, you're not doing your job, man. Can't be having people shouting out amen. Now you're doing it too. The ushers are all slain in the spirit back there. Just don't throw your crowns from up the balcony, that's all. Anyway, all right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, and for the joy of our salvation. We thank you for your word open before us. We pray that we'd have open hearts to hear what the Spirit has to say to us, the church, individually and corporately. We bless you, Lord, this morning in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. There are some great mirror moments, if you stop and think about it. I've already alluded to the classic line from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. If you are paying attention and a big fan of the Disney version, you know that the actual dialogue in the movie is magic mirror on the wall. In the original Brothers Grimm story, translated into English, it is indeed mirror, mirror on the wall. Trivia aside, the evil queen's look into the mirror sets the malevolent tone for the rest of the story. Through the Looking Glass, and what Alice found there is a novel by Lewis Carroll. It's the sequel to Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Set some six months later than the first book, Alice again enters a fantastical world, but this time it's by climbing through a mirror into the world that she can see beyond. In The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, the mirror of Galadriel was a basin filled with water in which one could see faraway visions of the past, present, and future. It was used by Galadriel, the Lady of Lorien. Galadriel could not predict what the mirror would show and did not guarantee that its visions would come to pass. The best pop culture mirror moment, Fonzie in Happy Days. Right? Season one, episode one, he steps up to the bathroom mirror with a comb in his hand, only to see himself perfectly quaffed. He then uttered his famous, hey, and walks away from the mirror without touching himself. Now, it's interesting. This term and that whole scene came from an improvised moment because Henry Winkler refused to comply with the writers. They insisted that he constantly run the comb through his hair, but when he filmed it, he instead stopped himself and said the line. It received huge laughs from the audience, and the scene was made part of the opening sequence and uh, something that lives in our hearts forever. (laughs) There's some great mirror moments in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part... But then I shall know just as I am also known. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. By far the most well-known mirror moment in the Bible or elsewhere, I would say, is when James said, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. 
With the help of the Holy Spirit, it's my hope we all have more mirror moments once we understand a little bit more about what James was saying. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, the mirror shows you there is work to be done. And number two, the mirror shows you the work God has done. Let's take a look first of all in verses 19 through 24 on the work to be done. Let me ask you another question. Do you remember autostereograms? Autostereograms. Probably not by that name. Popular in the 90s, they were those posters of colored dots that allowed some people to see 3D images by focusing on 2D patterns. And so it was a big poster, uh, and you'd hang it on the wall, and it was just random patterns. But if you stared at it long enough without focusing, a 3D image would pop out at you. They're popularly called magic eye. Now, obviously, the Apostle Paul knew nothing about magic eye, but when he said, we with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord, it has the feeling of seeing something come into focus. We're looking at something, staring at it intently, and suddenly it comes into focus. In our case, Jesus comes into focus, and the more he does, the more like him we become. If I'm going to look more like Jesus, I'm going to need to do a lot of staring. And so James invites us to look long into the mirror. So let's pick it up in verse 19. He so, so, uh, says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, these are great, this is great advice at any point in time, reading kind of like a modern-day proverb. But it's also super important we keep in mind the original audience James was writing to. They were his beloved brethren. They were Jews who had received Jesus Christ as their Messiah and had been born again. They were being severely persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And we learned earlier in this chapter, they had been scattered out of Jerusalem, forced to flee their homes uh, farther and farther away from the center of Jewish life. We would consider them, in fact, refugees. Now, I don't need to tell you that the immediate human reaction to persecution is anger, here called wrath. And so James is talking about a reaction that his beloved brethren are having to their persecution. I think we can assume that many of these Messianic Jews were swift to speak out against their persecutors, slow to hear godly encouragement, and quick-tempered. They were just the opposite of what James encourages them to be. When James used the word produced, he was introducing an illustration. If they were compared to a plant, the fruit they were producing was the wrath of man. It's a fruit not at all palatable to God and not very attractive for a Christian. James reminded them that their circumstances were the perfect garden to instead produce the righteousness of God. So they're producing wrath in their reaction. He says instead produce the righteousness of God. Now, righteous and righteousness, those are terms we don't always fully understand, or at least I don't. In everyday life, we might say something is righteous the way Crush does in the Nemo movies as a superlative to describe the rush he gets from riding the ocean's currents. You remember? Righteous! Righteous! And, and it's that kind of a, you know, 
super superlative kind of a comment, but in the Bible, righteousness is, and I would quote, behavior that is morally perfect. So it is moral perfection. William Tyndale, the great Bible translator, originally translated the Hebrew word into English as right ways. And so it is always thinking and doing the right ways. The Bible's standard of righteousness is God's perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, and every word. And so if we are to be like God, if we are to go to heaven, be accepted into heaven, we are going to have his perfect righteousness. And that's why the Bible can honestly declare there is none righteous, not one, and that all fall short of the glory of God. If we are to have any hope of heaven, God must declare us righteous. And he does just that when we believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus takes upon himself our sin, and God imputes to us his righteousness. James' use of righteousness also implies that a saved person can lead a life that is pleasing to God. A believer can always go the right ways and avoid the wrong ways. Instead of wrath, the natural reaction, they could produce the righteousness of God, or we might even say the fruit of the Spirit. And so a question here before we go on. Are you in a tough testing right now? If you are, look to see, are you producing wrong way wrath or right way fruit? It's an initial analysis that will help us as we go along. What is your reaction to the persecution or the trial that you're in? Is it wrath? Is it anger? Is it bitterness? Is it something that is palatable to God? Or is it uh, the fruit of the Spirit? Verse 21, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Don't ask me why, but the other day Pam and I were watching a show called Filthy Cities. Uh, It's a series, and what they do is they look back in time at, uh, you know, how people handled their garbage and waste. And this particular episode, episode one, was in London in the Middle Ages, and they were talking specifically about the London Bridge as a throughfare to get into London and the terrible, awful things that you had to walk through to get there. You see, there were housing and tenements and all on both sides, you know, double, two-story, three-story. And so all of your human waste and all of your animal waste and all of your butcher shop waste and all of your garbage was just thrown out of the window into the street and then it was trampled underfoot. So much so that they invented, uh, they had these clogs that they invented that you would put on your shoes that were just wooden platforms so that you could slog through Ophal and different things that were in the and it was it was a thing. Pam said, "Why are we watching this?" And we kept turning away and gagging. I mean, it was just you know I, I don't know about you, but I'm sometimes I watch these movies you know set in medieval times or the early West or something, and I, I don't know why, but I think, man, it must have smelled bad right then. I mean, that guy hasn't had a bath in six months, you know, and stuff, and and and, and it's actually much worse than you think, uh, and so it was just. It was incredible to to just think about living in those times and the stench of it. Now, these words, filthiness and overflow of wickedness, they're like that. I don't know exactly what they mean, but you don't want this stench and defilement attaching itself to you. That's what James is saying. 
Were some of the Messianic Jews reverting to gross pre-salvation sins? Maybe, but I think what he meant is something a little bit different and more profound. The phrase lay aside tells us that James was likening their situation to laying aside or taking off or removing their garments. Not physical garments, their spiritual clothing. In terms more familiar to us as Gentiles, he was saying they should put off the old man and put on the new man created in Christ Jesus when you were saved. And so the Bible frequently talks about our relationship with God and our walk with God in terms of clothing so that we can understand it. It says, before we know the Lord, we're clothed in filthy rags. All the stuff that they're throwing out of those London windows is hitting us and sticking to us and we stink like crazy. And there's nothing we can do to clean ourselves off. But when we get saved, it's like taking off or putting off that old garment and now putting on Christ's white robe of righteousness. And so James is saying, hey, don't fall back into this filthiness and wickedness and, and this old way of life, this old man, this old nature. Stay walking in the new nature, the divine nature. And then he says it's able to save your souls. That describes the ongoing work of salvation. Salvation is three-phased in the Bible. It involves your past, your present, and your future. When you received Jesus and were born again, you were saved for eternity. That is phase one. And so you're declared righteous by God, given a robe of righteousness, and your new position is that God sees you in Jesus Christ when he looks at you, though in one sense nothing has changed about your life, in another everything has changed because now you are in Christ Jesus and God accepts you in his beloved son. Then begins an ongoing process of salvation we call sanctification, the practical making of you more holy day by day until phase three, you die and go to be with the Lord or we're raptured get your glorified body, and you're glorified. And so those are the three phases of salvation. You're saved, you're being sanctified, you will finally be glorified. James was encouraging them here in phase two, encouraging them to cooperate with God and be sanctified by enduring persecution as a Christian can and should. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James had illustrated their response by comparing them to a plant bearing fruit, either wrath or righteousness. He had compared them to a man choosing to wear either filthy garments or those that spoke of righteousness. Now he says they are like poets. Bear with me for a minute. This word doers can mean those who build something or who put something together, but it is also the word you'd use of a poet writing poetry. If you have a a Bible or a Bible app that shows you the Strong's Concordance, you can go there and see that the root word of this is where we get our word for poet. Now, I like that because in the book of Ephesians, Paul says we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, the word for workmanship is the word for poem. And so we are God's poem. He is writing our lives ahead of us as a poem. And it says that there are good works that he has ordained for us to discover and walk in. That's our part as poets. 
And so there's a poem being written, and as we cooperate with the leading of God, we are collaborating with him as poets. Some of you collaborate online. Several people have access to the same document, and you each work on it until it's deemed finished by the main author. In this context, to be a hearer only means you're not collaborating with the work of God. You're intently listening to the poet, perhaps, but you're making no contribution of your own. A few years ago, a, an ingenious minister called people like this, Christians like this, pew potatoes. You ever heard that expression? I've never used it. I think it's derogatory and demeaning, but uh, everybody knows what a couch potato is. You're just sitting on the couch eating potato chips and you know, just being a general slob when you uh, could be doing stuff. And he said, well, there's Christians like that. They're pew potatoes. They come, they hear the word of God, they keep taking in and taking in, but it's all just in, you know, it's all intake and there's no output. Uh, now, James is talking about a person like that, but he says you're deceiving yourself. And so here's a better illustration. Let's say you want to get in shape. Uh, there, we all go through periods of time in our life where we want to get in shape. We you know, want to get a little bit more physical and take care of ourselves. And so typically you would join one of the gyms here in town. You get a gym membership. Every few days, you put on your exercise clothes and you go down to the gym. There you find a comfortable table and the snack bar. You order a latte. You sit there for an hour or two reading articles on your iPad about fitness and nutrition. And so you get the picture, right? You're all ready to exercise. You go to the snack bar and, and you, you're reading about algae and the properties of algae and you know, salt in your water and kale. You got to have some kale going and stuff like that and all these supplements. Are you going to get in shape with that kind of behavior? Well, no, of course not. You already know that. You could do that at home as a couch potato. All the equipment is there, but you have to utilize it in order to see the results. And so that's what James is saying. You, you have to put this into action and engage. He says, if anyone is a hearer of the word, verse 23, and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. If you want to understand this, here's a challenge for you. I challenge you to go out tomorrow and for the next few days, go to work or to school without looking into a mirror to get yourself ready. Now, some of you guys, this wouldn't be so difficult. In fact, you look like you did that already. <laughs> I could pull it off because I have perfect hair. My hair looks the same. I'll get up and I say, oh, my hair needs to... And Pam says, you look exactly the same, but... But even guys are vain, and we like to comb our hair and shave and do all those things. But man, if you're a lady, you gals, if, you, if you're a makeup-wearing lady, you're in trouble. You're going to have eyebrows up on your forehead. You're going to have rouge and mascara in places where it doesn't work. I mean, after the third day, somebody's going to have to have an intervention in your life. And, and so, you know, it's, it's a really powerful illustration because we all know the, the uh, import of mirrors. And so Jane says, verse 24, if you observe yourself and go away and immediately forget what kind of man you are, this guy uses the mirror but doesn't do anything about what he sees in it. He sees that he needs a shave. He sees that unlike the fawns, his hair needs combing. You get the idea. He just walks away doing nothing. James says this here is observing his natural face and then he forgets what kind of man he was. I, I think it's a clue. He's content to 
react to life as the natural man he was before salvation rather than desiring the things that are more supernatural that will change him to be more like Jesus. So he's a Christian. He's writing to born-again Messianic Jews. But they're defaulting to their old sin nature rather than drawing from the new nature. They don't want to look into the mirror long enough to realize how they ought to act and react. This section started with James suggesting that those he was writing to were not responding to their persecution the right way. And now it ends by suggesting that it's because they're not really interested in becoming more like Jesus. Not in that area anyway. Now in the remaining verses, James is going to talk about looking into the mirror in the way that changes you from glory to glory. He says you should be looking intently into the mirror. Now he tells you how so that we can be transformed more into the image of Jesus. And in these verses, verses 25 through 27, we'll see the work that God has done. Now, have you ever seen that mirror comedy skit with Lucille Ball and Harpo Marx? I love Lucy. And she's dressed as Harpo Marx. Uh, some of you don't even know who Harpo Marx is. I know, I'm dating myself. I'm too old, I'm too young to know who Harpo Marx is, to tell you the truth, but this is, YouTube has made us all Generation X, hasn't it? Because you can go look this up right now. If you want to do it right now, turn your volume down. But uh, Lucy and her, and, and she's dressed like him. And, he's, and, and she comes out from behind a screen. And he comes out. And they mimic each other's actions. And he's mind blown. Uh, he's a fantastic mime and, and just super funny from the Marx Brothers. And so she mimics all of his actions. Before the election, you may have seen a variation on a mirror skit as Jimmy Fallon was dressed to look like Trump had a conversation with Trump, the real Trump, as if the president-elect was talking to himself and giving himself advice in the mirror. Now, there's an element of both of those ideas in James' use of the mirror as an illustration. First, like Lucy, we're to see the real thing and then imitate it. The real thing is Jesus as he is presented to us in the Bible. And at the same time, there's a dialogue going on as God the Holy Spirit applies what we see in Jesus to our own lives and we decide whether or not we want to yield to his leading. And so verse 25, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of this work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Without any explanation at all, instead of saying he who looks into the mirror, which is what we would expect, James says it's the perfect law of liberty. Now, his original audience needed no explanation. They would know he meant the law of Moses summarized in the Ten Commandments internalized. Regarding his law summarized in the Ten Commandments, God had promised the Jews that one day he would internalize it and they would be supernaturally endowed in order to keep it perfectly. The promise is recorded in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, this is a, something that all Jews would have been excited about, they would have known about from reading their scriptures. The law was difficult, well, actually impossible to keep, and the, it was a burden in one sense to the Jewish people. And that's why they had to keep continually offering sacrifices every day and every festival and every year because the, they couldn't 
perfectly keep God's perfect law. But God said, hey, one day, one day that perfect law that you can't really keep right now, I'm going to write it on your hearts and put it in your minds. And they understood what that meant, that they would be endowed by God with the power to do what is right all the time. My mind is processing all sorts of information right now on its own. Maybe not as much as yours because you're so much smarter than I am. But you know what I mean. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're focusing as much as we can on, on the word, but three or four of you have wandered off into this afternoon's activities and others are thinking that breakfast was too much and you're about ready to burp. Others are hungry. And, you know, but, but your mind is just working, working, working all of the time. And your heart, better illustration, your heart's been beating and you've been able to pay attention not worrying about whether your heart's going to stop. You don't have to tell your heart to beat every several seconds. Beat. Beat. I mean, that would be annoying. And so listen, if God says his law is in my mind and on my heart, then spiritually speaking, I've been endowed by God to be able to follow it, to keep it as a byproduct of being saved. Having a heartbeat is a byproduct of being alive. I mean, there's, you know, things going on that I don't understand to keep my heart beating, but I don't have to worry about it. It's a byproduct of being alive. God is saying, one day, keeping my law and doing the right things is going to be a byproduct of a relationship with me. And, of course, we know that the reason for that is that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit to empower us. Why don't I keep God's law all the time then? Well, one reason is that I still find in me the flesh, that propensity to want to fulfill my appetites in sinful, evil ways. And I have this struggle between the flesh and the spirit, and I will until I go to be with the Lord. Another reason I don't keep God's law all the time is because I try to keep it in my own strength as an outward rule or ritual rather than understanding that I've been endowed with power to keep it from within. This is probably the most common complaint about Christianity is that it's just another religion with its own lists of do's and don'ts, mostly don'ts. And people have the impression that to become a Christian, they have to change their life. They have to quit doing almost all the things they enjoy doing to sit in a pew and be miserable once a week on Sundays. That's, that's what people think Christianity is. Of course, you and I that have been born again, we understand that you didn't have to quit doing anything. You just didn't want to do it anymore. I remember when I got saved, I just rattle off a few things. I'm not judging you, but when I first got saved, I was a drunk, but I didn't want to drink anymore. I didn't get saved and then say, now I'm going to have to go to a, a program. I'm going to have to try really hard not to drink. The Holy Spirit filled my heart in such a way You know, maybe he didn't do this for everybody, but in such a way at that time that I had no desire to drink anymore. And I kind of thought it was a waste of time. I I actually, I wouldn't have put it this way because I was a brand new Christian, but it was a be filled with the spirit and be not drunk with wine kind of a thing. And there was a bunch of stuff like that that just fell off of my life. I said, hey, I don't want to do that. I don't want to listen to that. Suddenly I heard the words to those songs. I, oh, wow, my parents were right. Those are terrible lyrics, you know? I mean, it's, it's, and, and you just, you, you become, you know, it, it becomes your nature. All of our lives, we had dogs, disobedient dogs, <laughs> Siberian Huskies. I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise it for anybody. They're beautiful and mischievous. 
But we finally got to the point where all of our dogs had died and we didn't have any replacement dogs. And I said, that's it. We are done with dogs. Now we have two cats. <laughs> We've, I've never had a cat in my entire life until a couple of years ago. Cats are so interesting. They, they just, they're, so, they're totally different than dogs, which threw me. So when I say no to my cat, it looks at me like, what are you talking about? I don't understand that at all. So for example, just one quick example. Laundry needs to be folded, sitting in the basket, day one, day two, day three, it's just sitting there. Nobody's bothering the basket. I bring it over to start folding it. Whoa, alert, jump in the basket. Start digging under all the stuff, biting it as it's going, and there's nothing I can do to stop it. Cats default to their curious nature. And so what James is saying is that if you are born again, you have God's divine nature in you, and you can default to doing what's right because you have the power to do that. Now, we also have the flesh, and you know, we also have, our, like I said, our own propensity to want to do things our way and ourselves. But this is, this is James' point. He says, hey, you guys are bringing forth the wrath of God. You can easily bring forth the fruit of the Spirit and righteousness because it's in your nature now as Christians. The law was a written code you couldn't keep. Try to live by it and you would fail. But now it's written on our hearts. Now, James calls it the perfect law of liberty. It isn't just that the law was perfect, but that the perfect law describes what Jesus has done. He perfectly fulfilled or completed the law for us. And so we see in Jesus the perfect fulfillment of the law and the power to do it ourselves. We have the liberty of living the right way according to our new nature by the endowment of power given to us by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so a lot of times in the Christian life, it's not so much how can I do this, but why am I not doing this? Again, I don't want to put burdens on anybody, but we are used to uh, coming to the Lord and saying, okay, Lord, I see what you want me to be like. What are the 10 steps I need to take to get there? And I think sometimes the Lord would say, the step I took to get you there was the resurrection from the dead. And now you have the power to do that. And when you fail, because you will, because you know we're still human, we still have the flesh, then you repent and you keep going forward. And so James is quite honestly saying, he goes, you guys need to quit being angry about your persecution and start being loving to your persecutors. Oh, what? That's crazy. Do you give advice like that to people? I have to. It's an occupational hazard. You, you guys, I don't know, you can skate a little bit. Oh, well, everything's going to be all right. Don't worry about it. Huh? You'll be fine. Yeah. People come to me and I say, sounds like you're going to die. Hey, I know it's funny now, but I've had to say that. People come and they say, look, this is what's happening. I've got this, 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 and this. You know, what do you think? I go, well, it sounds like if God doesn't heal you, you're going to die. The doctor said it's terminal, right? Yeah, well, all right. But it doesn't have to be quite that extreme. In lots of other areas, you know, sometimes, and I sit there and I think, oh, Lord, please, can I soften the blow somehow? 
And the answer is no. Sometimes you say, hey, you're wrong. This is the wrong reaction. A lot of times guys in marriage counseling say, well, I know I'm a knucklehead. And I say, yeah, you are a knucklehead. Well, I didn't mean it. (laughs) Well, then you're a worse knucklehead than you think, you know? So... So that's what James is saying. James is saying, hey, you guys are producing the wrath of God. What's up with that? You're Christians. You're to be producing the fruit of the Spirit. Messianic Jews needed constant reminding to not return to the rites and rules and rituals of Judaism as a means of righteousness. One reason they needed this reminding was the temptation to avoid persecution by returning to Judaism. I mean, this is something we have a hard time relating to, but they were Jews who'd become born again, and they were leaving some of the rites and rituals of Judaism behind for the freedom that they had to follow Christ. Their families and their friends who were still Jews were persecuting them or turning them over to the Romans for persecution. And there was pressure to stay Jews and to keep trying to fulfill the law. And some of that pressure was getting to them, and they were thinking, okay, Maybe I can be a closet Christian and, all, and still act like a Jew, and then I, will, I can keep my house and my business and all of that. The writer to the Hebrews will come along and say, yeah, that is not going to work. It's not going to work because there's no power to live that way, and ultimately you're denying Christ who fulfilled the law. So you can't have it both ways. And so the Jews needed this reminder all of the time. It wasn't an option. They had to endure their persecution. They had to suffer their persecution. James was smart enough to know and led by the Spirit enough to know that things were not going to get better before they got worse. And so they might as well figure out what God was about in their persecution. If any one of you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. This seems disconnected at first, but it's not. James has been describing the change from keeping the law externally and being empowered internally to keep it. Externally, you can seem very religious. The Pharisees, for example, seemed incredibly religious, putting other people to shame, but their tongue revealed ultimately what was in their heart. And, and this is true. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, you know, people can still say religious things. By tongue, I think what James means, not just their speech, but, and this is scary, if you could have written down as a transcript the things that you think about, and the things that you would say if they were verbalized, that's scary. At least for me it would be. I wouldn't want you to see some of those things because, again, you have the flesh. And so that's what James said. You can't just be outwardly religious. You can't go through rituals. You have to see an inward change. And, and when you see some of these things, you think, oh, I'm not, not changed enough, and I need the Lord to continue to work in my heart. Verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. In the first century, widows and orphans were especially needy. There were no government programs to help them. It was all left to their religious people. One author wrote, the practical outworking of the new birth is found in acts of grace and a walk of separation. Acts of grace to James seem extremely personal. I get that from his use of the word visit. It's one thing to hear about the needs of orphans and widows and their trouble and give towards helping them, and that's a great thing that we all should do. But it's another thing entirely to visit them 
to get hands-on in a personal way. Now, this doesn't mean every one of us has to visit widows or take in orphans. In fact, I think even James is using it as an illustration. He's picking on the neediest people in their culture and saying, hey, true religion is being involved with people who have great need on a very personal basis. And so some of us need to do that kind of stuff, and all of us need to be hands-on in some area of ministering to others. Dr. J. Vernon McGee said this. He said, Christians should be getting out where the people are. I feel there's a grave danger in our having a religion of the sanctuary, but not a religion of the street. We need a religion of the street also. We should be in contact with the world in a personal way with tenderness and kindness and helpfulness. Just remember to keep yourself unspotted by the world. It's safer in the sanctuary. Life on the streets can get awfully messy. And by streets, I don't mean ghettos or the third world. The streets are anywhere you live and work, anywhere there are sinners who need the gospel. You can be just as defiled in a white-collar job in a skyscraper as you, can, as you can working with addicts in some makeshift labor camp. If you've never been born again, or excuse me, if you have been born again, you have a new nature, a divine nature. It loves to obey God. It loves to go the right ways. It's cat-like in that way. It, it, it defaults to that way. It, it has to because it's God's nature. It's not a burden to obey. It's a blessing. Back to our illustration earlier, the person who thinks they have to quit doing all kinds of things to come to church. No, you come to church, you get saved, and then probably you quit doing some things because you realize that they weren't productive. They're not helping you walk with the Lord. In fact, they're counterproductive. They're dis- they destroy lives. And you don't want to ruin your life or other lives anymore. You want to build people up. And so that's the idea. But it's hard because the devil is the god of this world system and he uses it to attack you and you find your flesh subject to these temptations. As pressures mount, you can revert to your natural reactions. You might, for example, be angry and say things you shouldn't. James says, don't do that. Instead, stare at Jesus as he's revealed in God's word until the right way of reacting comes into focus. And then by faith... Walk according to that new nature. Let's pray.